0: Sean McEntee's parents came from County Monaghan, but he himself was born in Belfast, in College Square North.
1: I think I was born, I know I was present on the occasion, but I, I don't recall yeah. the circumstances. Yeah.
0: He was educated by the Christian brothers. One striking thing which
1: I carry through all my years there has been the, de- the devotion of the brothers, and in particular their sense of nationality. The first person who tried to make me teach particularly Irish, an Irish Christian brother. Um, he's dead now, he long. he was then the superior of the Christian brothers. And the uh, first glance I had at an Irish grammar or heard an Irish word spoken was from him. And all, the whole atmosphere of that school was permeated by a, a, a sense of nationality. No, was no, no bigotry that I could recall. Of course, I was very young these things would impinge upon me, i take them as being uh, sort of an ordinary normal course. But the one thing which we were, in, which was inculcated in us, if it had to be inculcated, was the fact that
0: we, we were, were Irish
1: and that we should be proud to be Irish and should know something about Irish history.
0: Sean McEntee's father was a publican, and the family lived in the heart of urban Belfast, near the Falls, Diva Street, Hamill Street. It was a deprived area. There was a, The outworking system was,
1: was, was then common. I don't know how many dots they'd have to embroider on a piece of linen in order to get a shilling, but there was something colossal in there. Very often late at night you could see these people working If you happen to be in their homes or called in, as sometimes one did. Um, Here uh, you, one had to realise the extreme poverty and hardship mm-hmm. which persisted particularly in the Catholic borders.
0: He was politically aware at an early age and while working as assistant with the Dundalk Borough Engineer, he became involved with the volunteers. He remembered well how he heard of the Easter Rising.
1: Paddy Hughes came into my office in the electricity works in Dundalk. I remember the words, says, Mac, it's come. His face was burning with enthusiasm and joy and gladness.
2: At that
0: time, McEntee was with the Dundalk column, but he was ordered into Dublin during the Rising. He arrived in the GPO and there, briefed the leaders on what he knew of the situation in the country.
1: Then, the morning I reported to uh, to Tom Clark and, and to, and to Connolly, and eventually to Pearson, told them what I had seen that there was no writing, there was no I mean, the whole city, and even the, even the people one met were talking about the Germans had landed here, there, everywhere, you see. So I had to tell them there was nothing doing in the country. I wouldn't say they were... Di- I, uh, that didn't come as a surprise to them. But they were disappointed, but it wasn't a surprise, because others had apparently given them the same information.
0: Were they dispirited?
1: Oh, no, well, they showed no signs of it.
0: He had vivid recollections of the surrender. Pierce, having lined us up, I think there were 22 files of us,
1: and putting us under, there, to told us what we were to do. We were to try to make Williams and Woods. Mm-hmm and hold it until the, the the main body evacuated the post office and took over. Well, unfortunately, our intelligence wasn't very really good because uh, we just got right into, out of the post office and into Moore Street and well up into it, you know. I, we, I was, we, we were the last of the files that turned around when the, the, the British opened fire right down the street on us. That's when they Paul O'Reilly was killed.
0: After the Rising, McEntee embarked on a jail career which was to bring him to many penal establishments. Kilmainham, Stafford Military Jail, Richmond Barracks, Dartmoor. Later he served in Gloucester in Pentonville in Lewis. He could make a comparative analysis and praise, for example, conditions in Stafford.
1: The cells were much better than they were in Kilmainham, much better than they were afterwards in Dartmoor. there were, I think... My recollection, my recollection is they were slightly bigger and they were loftier and they were cleaner.
0: During his time in prison, McEntee and three others were charged with the murder of a constable McGee. He remembered what happened when the judge pronounced sentence.
1: He started with the... with young Lee, And... Your dumb formula seemed to be like this, if I recollect it correctly. Uh, you, so-and-so... And then he read out the indictment and then he said the court martial has found you, General Court Martial, you've been found guilty uh, and uh, sentenced to death, but the general officer commanding has you your sentenced to penal servitude for three years. And he went on and he recited the same formula, and in the case of Sally, only in his case commutation was for five years then he uh, went on to Martin and uh, Martin's case the commutation was for ten years then he came on to myself you see and uh, he was like the same thing, found guilty and sentenced to death and then there was a rather significant pause during which I may say I didn't feel very happy and then he, he, he announced Field. The general officer commanding has commuted your service, your your sentence, to penal servitude for life.
0: In May 1921, Sean McEntee married Margaret Brown, who came from a famous Tipperary family. Her brother, the late Monsignor Maurice Brown, the parish priest of Ballymore Eustace, told me how he first heard of Sean McEntee. She told
3: me about this wonderful man, handsome, poorish, sentenced to death, penal servitude, exchanged for um, a life sentence, you know. And um, all this big build-up was there for me, you know.
0: This was from your sister?
3: From my sister. And I was in America. I had come back from America. I was in America, 1917 to twenty. I came back, and um, anyhow, my sister said she'd like to bring me down. Bring him down to me. I was in Valley Mount at the time, up at the hills of Wicklow, you see. So I was expecting something glorious looking and you know, all romantic and so on. Out of the stream tram, I met the stream tram, stepped a little man, medium size, you know, with a bolo hat and a gingery mustache, travelling for bushmills whiskey. That was his disguise. <laughs> so anyhow. Uh, We became great friends, of course. I brought him out, and uh, I had had almost the difficulty of keeping them apart and being a strict theologian, you know. So anyhow, that was the beginning of my acquaintance with Sean. Then uh, the next thing was, um, well, he was on the run, often came down and stayed with me in Valleymound, and uh, he was married in the University Church one evening. Both of them were on the run at the time. My sister was on the run at the time, too. <laughs> they were married in the University Church by my brother, Paddy.
0: In the course of the debates on the treaty, McEntee came to notice for one particular thing. He was almost alone in mentioning
2: the North. Desmond Williams. The re- remarkable point about this was that it drew him into what you might call national Prominence. He was otherwise a a relatively unimportant figure in the doll of that time. But he made a long, passionate appeal for the deputies to take account of Ulster and not merely to be thinking of things. Like the oath, which were unsubstantial, and uh, he was very sharp in his criticism. It looked as if he was dissociating himself from all his other colleagues on that point. From comparatively obscure
0: political beginnings in the Doyle, he soon started to make his way.
2: He rapidly made his his name. Also, when, after two or three years, in 1927, Fiona Folle entered the door. Uh, he was one of the most active members of what you might call the disloyal opposition. Uh, he spoke very, very well, he he always was, of course, a good orator. outside. He was able to show himself uh, a very active person in committee work. Uh, he was a man who uh, was able to quote Rabelais in The Dole and of very few could that be said. He was well-read and well-read in several languages.
0: Do you think it was his power of oratory that brought him to the notice, really, of the leaders of the party?
2: Yes. He was a hard worker in committee, but it was the oratory, the capacity for jibe and sneer, um, and the quickness and alertness of... ...of mind, which was most unusual. In 1932,
0: Fiona Foyle came to power. It was a turning point in the career of Sean McEntee. The government was composed of men who five years before had not even been in the Doyle, and who only ten years previously had been in prisons and internment camps. How did they set about the task of governing the country? Well, first of all, we had a
1: great sense of responsibility and a great sense of unity. We had all been working together before the Civil War, during the Black and Tan War, most of us during the Black and Tan War. After the Civil War, in Sinn Féin, and then in Fianna Fáil, we knew each other very well. We had had various spheres of study and responsibility allocated to us by Uh, Mr de Valera, as leader of the party. Uh, So, insofar as the functions of the several departments, of the the departments which we might individually be called upon to take over were concerned, uh, we knew a great deal, at least from the outside. And we had very definite ideas as to how these functions should be exercised. Uh, The first thing, of course, was uh, how we were going to deal with these departments. That was not so very difficult because though we were somewhat apprehensive, having perhaps the feeling that we were going to meet a body of hostile functionaries uh, who would who would have had uh, certain feelings of obligation to those who preceded us and who might indeed, as many of them had perhaps at the time of the treaty, uh, very definite ideas uh, as to how the uh, treaty ought to be operated and perhaps ideas that were not strictly in accordance with our own. But the main factor, I think, which made it possible for us to function as a government was that we found that these men, whatever their own private opinions might be, were quite prepared to give to us very uh, loyal and exceptional service. We had some, at the beginning, we had some apprehension about the position of the Garda here, corner, because it had been. It was commonly rumored that the then commissioner of the Garda uh, didn't at all uh, favour the possibility. Of a change of government, he didn't feel that it was in the interests of the country that the Commonwealth government, which had been operating the treaty, should be displaced by a Fianna Fáil government, which, with the avowed object of, if possible, securing the repeal of the treaty and the 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 establishment of a new relationship with Great Britain. I think he didn't think that possible. And it was very strongly rumoured at the time that he had made certain approaches uh, to the army authorities, to the those in control of the army, to try and bring about uh, uh, a, 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 a mute on the part of these two forces uh, which would uh, prevent uh, Fianna Fall from uh, taking over. Uh, I understand, but I've nothing more than just a mere mere little tattle, so to speak, of, of, of political conversation at the time. I, I understand that the army refused uh, to be any party uh, to such a move and, consequently, Fianna Fáil took office without any of the expected civil disturbances, without any of the civil disturbances which might have characterised such a, a complete... Uh, uh, Changeover uh, as was uh, represented when we took office and Finnegale resigned office. And again I must say that uh, I understand that in this regard we owe a very great deal indeed uh, to the late William T. Cosgrave, who steadfastly set his face against any proposal uh, to disregard the clear withdrawal of confidence which was manifested in the general election of of the second general election of of
0: 1927. From the time Fianna Foyle gained power, Sean McEntee was to go on to high office, the ministries of finance, industry and commerce, local government and public health. He was made thornish though. His constituency was Dublin South East and he was well known to the Dublin voters. They didn't treat him with any reverence when he took to the Hustings.
4: I am certain... I am certain that every citizen in Dublin will avail of the opportunity which will be given to him on Wednesday next to pay the tribute to him and the Valera, that is so... <laughs> which on every ground... which on every ground he has so signally merited. His character, his ability, his personality and as long-devoted and fruitful service to the Irish people. Mark him out as the outstanding figure of this generation.
0: His enthusiasm for Eamon de Valera was not received uncritically by the Dublin crowd.
4: Whatever else the Irish people may do on Wednesday, let them vote to make Eamon de Valera president of Ireland, president... president of the republic which which under his leadership they have established it's alright I want I want a rest and so do they and when the ducks have become have stopped quacking I'd go on But don't let. But don't let. These are what my friend Frank Aiken calls the abominable the abominable no man.
0: The war years brought shortages and problems for ministers. I once suggested to Mr. McEntee that if he was forgotten for everything else, he would still be immortalized in a street rhyme. We had a ration tea. We had to ration bread. At the
1: end, uh, we had to impose rations. I think on cigarettes. I wasn't interested because it didn't smoke. But but I uh, understood that people who uh, people were prepared to sacrifice their tea for uh, cigarettes. But in any event, uh, why it was unfair to me was I had nothing to do with the with, with, with the with the distribution of of these commodities at all. These necessaries. Uh, but uh, in order to, I suppose, commemorate uh, the, the war years, when the war was over, uh, one popular rhyme that used to go around, I heard oh, Jim, Jimmy, Jimmy, Jimmy O'Dea, was the man whom I heard at, I heard at first at some pantomime, he was singing about God Bless De Valera and Sean McEntee. They gave us brown bread and two ounces of tea. No, that of course is merely as a, an example of poetic license, because I had nothing to do with the distribution, but they
0: couldn't rhyme La and of tea. <laughs> <laughs> During the long years in various ministries, Sean McEntee was in constant close touch with civil servants. One of them was Liam O'Marrahu.
5: I worked with him from about 1960 up to the time I left the civil service in 1964. Mostly on the legislation, which is, we all thought at that time that he was coming into the custom house, into the Department of Health, to a kind of rest job where it would be an easy berth from there on in. But he wasn't three months in the place when he set the whole place on fire with his, with his uh, appetite for work, and we found ourselves having to get on with legislation which had been lying there for a long time waiting to be done. But he had an enormous, as I say, appetite for work and. Uh, we really were put on our bikes and got going immediately on it. How did you find him as a man? Well, of course, gradually one had to get to know him as a person, and in the opening stages we found him a very um, formidable customer indeed. Um, we all knew about his reputation for acerbity and for wit, mostly irate and irascible, but what we didn't know, or what I didn't know at least, was that he was a most lovely, charming Man, really, and in as I said there recently at close quarters, he was an absolute delight to work with. It wasn't like working at all. He was, a, for one thing, for example, he was a, to me, he was a wonderful teacher. He taught you how to approach things, and how to handle things. And he had a wonderful sense of style, and um, this would emerge in as mundane a matter as say the notes for a committee stage brief, which I did several of for him, and uh, even in things like that, there was a. Aside now from the encyclopaedic knowledge which he had of the whole legislative scene, that was this added element of style that he had going with him. And uh, certainly that was something that I liked very, very much and got to enjoy very much.
0: There was always a hint of intellectual arrogance, that uh, he didn't suffer fools gladly.
5: He actually said that once himself to somebody. um, I don't know, I, I hate to qualify as a fool, but he certainly suffered me. And, uh, and taught me a fair amount. Uh, now, by that I mean to say that it would never do not to have read up the material and to know exactly what it was all about, but when it came to the, let's say, the, the resolution of, uh, of a set of uh, alternatives and the selection of one particular line of approach, in all of that he was patient and painstaking in explaining to you why this line wouldn't be right and why the other would. There were, I think what was mistaken about him was that he had a kind of testy voice, When he was saying this, and this misled people into thinking that he was cross, but actually he wasn't at all. There was a a lovely man, I'm sure if he hears this he'll be annoyed for my mentioning his name, Brendan Herlihy, who had a lovely way equally with Sean McEntee, he was a civil servant, and he would explain in lay terms to Mr McEntee, the Tornish Day, you must understand we would refer to him as, He would explain to him in lay terms what the implications of something that he was doing were. And uh, there was a a wonderful uh, duality, or whatever the word is. They cooperated very well together, those two. And listening to the two of them, like Abbey Budden's wasn't as a child among them taking notes, I certainly learned something about uh, how the administrative process worked and how it worked with style, looking at the pair of them. And, of course, he had this prodigious memory. Um, once some years afterwards when I had come to work in RTE he was out here one night doing a programme with God love him David Thornley it was and it was about semi-state bodies I believe and some new one that had been invented or had not been invented And he was in the dressing room afterwards having a drink with us with David Tornley and Tom Barrington was there, a number of others. And I put him the question about why would it be necessary to set up a semi-state body to deal with this particular thing? Couldn't it be done through the company's legislation? And he went in to explain to me that... It was a question of degree, that if it, if it was something that... If it was a matter of, of agreed public national policy, then you needn't submit that to the process of discussion in the houses of the Oireachtas. Whereas, like, for example, supposing you were talking about curing cancer, well, everybody agreed about that, and so you needn't go through the process of legislation to set up St Luke's as a company. But on the other hand, if you were talking about voluntary health insurance, that was something that there could be a degree of political difference about, and you would go through the process of legislation about that. So then he stopped in midstream and said to me, well, he said, Liam, I don't have to, which is, if I'm mimicking him, I don't have to explain that to you, Liam. He said, you, you, you know all about that, you see. And I said to him, no, I don't know all about it. I said, anything I know about it, you taught me. I come, come, come now, Liam, he said, I ne- ne- never, never taught you anything. Indeed indeed you did, I said to him. And of course, it was light banter at this stage. Indeed and indeed you did, I said to him. You, you taught me the meaning of the word eleemosynary. I ah, yes, Liam, he said to me, that, that was the time we were doing the lotteries legislation. And the old man remembered precisely when he used the word, which must have been about 10 or 12 years before. Former Taoiseach
0: Jack Lynch was starting out on his political career when Sean McEntee was coming to the end of his. The first time I saw him was at a Fianna election
6: rally on the Grand Parade in Cork. It must have been one of the 19... 19- 30 elections, when I say 1930, in the decade of the 30s. And I remember him uh, as a very interesting speaker, a man who had a wonderful manner of expression and uh, a most incisive way of getting across his point. I certainly enjoyed it that night, even though I can't, as I say, remember what particular election it was. The first time I met him after that, first time I ever met him face to face was when I first became a Doyle deputy myself and I think it was in February 1948 when the Doyle reassembled and uh, in the event Fianna Foy were put out of office by an inter-party government uh, for the first time and that was after 16 years in office I always held uh, these people no matter on what side they were in a certain kind of awe perhaps I was so remote from them, living for most of my life in Cork. But uh, John McEntee then, of course, had a reputation for being uh, a speaker of great ability, uh, a reputation also of introducing some invective, which uh, in the aftermath I felt he never really deserved. But uh, the abiding memory I have of him that day was I was quite young, I was not yet 30 yes, I was was just about 30 and uh, I felt very much a stranger in Doyle Ayrton even though I had been in it once or twice because I had been a civil servant and I had occasion to come to Linster House on business, but only probably two or three times but I felt very much out of it and uh, there were so few people I knew that uh, I felt, you know, a complete, almost a complete stranger. But I do do remember at one stage of the proceedings, that was, I think, when the Taoiseach, who was then John A. a. Costello, had been elected by the Doyle, left for Ultron to receive his uh, his uh, seat of office. And there was an interim period of about an hour, an hour and a half, and I was wandering around, looking at the house, trying to familiarise myself with its geography. And, as I said, feeling somewhat isolated. Uh, when Sean McIntyre came up to me and spoke to me in a very cordial manner, and uh, I always remember that for him, and um, he recognised me, I suppose, as one of the new Fianna Foyle D- TDs, he probably had some sympathy for me in that I must have uh, shown uh, an appearance of some loss or being lost. So my first impression then was that oh, there's a, a gentleman.
0: When you met him, he was courteous and uh, warm towards mm, you. Yes. And yet he had this rather acerbic public image as being a difficult man, a hard man.
6: I agree, he had that, uh, and... Uh, I always thought that was the man, I thought that was Sean McEntee. But I think it was because of, as I indicated already, he was a man of commitment and a fighter. Commitment to a cause in which he believed and willing to fight for it. With the result that if the cause he believed was attacked uh, and if he had to, to defend it, he would certainly, even in a Serbic, in Serbic ma- um, manner, as you suggest. And I often saw people on the other side of the house whether it was in government or, uh, or in opposition as the case may be they was deliberately taunt Sean McEntee in order to get him onto his uh, acerbic horse so to speak uh, he sometimes uh, failed to rise to the debate but more often than not he he did rise to it but he was a man of tremendous expression and um, I often saw him deliberately and think it was a trait he uh, adopted. I won't say a trait he, he deliberately... Yes, he deliberately adopted in later years. He'd deliberately stutter, and before he'd come to a word or, or a rather very descriptive adjective, he'd say, ah, 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 and then he'd come out like a thunderbolt, which I thought was just a, a, a marvellous... Uh, uh, piece of theatre, if you like, which I think he deliberately adopted for that purpose. He was, uh, I have have a very distinct recollection of him in government as well as in, in opposition. And in government again, and he use the old cliche, he was a doughty fighter. He fought to the very last on any issue in which he believed. And I remember on one occasion when there was an issue in which most members of the government had a different point of view and seemed to prefer a, a separate solution, each in his own way. Mr. De Valeri was presiding. And eventually, uh, most of us uh, began to come to a consensus. And it was the one I think Mr. De Valeri himself was looking for. And there were still three men holding out. And the three were inevitably Ulsterman, Sean McEntee, Paddy Smith, and uh, Frank, Frank Aiken. so um, I think it probably was an uh, Ulster quality he had of tenacity and he shared it with his other two uh, Ulster colleagues
0: I was going to say that, that uh, he seemed to have some of the northern iron in his soul
6: oh he certainly had and uh, as well as that uh, he uh, I don't think he would go out of his way to, to look for a fight but I think above all he hated Humbug and uh, he just couldn't contain himself as a deputy in the Doyle He was speaking with his tongue in his cheek, so to speak. He wanted to, no matter what a person said, he would like that McIntyre would like that he, he believed in what he was, he was saying. And this is one thing that McIntyre was always very hard upon um, people who spoke in a humbuggery manner. You know, that's the wrong word, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> in, in, in an insincere manner, I should say.
0: How did he get on with uh, James Dillon?
6: I think they had a very, very special regard for each other. Uh, I've noticed that particularly in latter years, I suppose, when people become more mature, the uh, fighting qualities are perhaps not as uh, intense as they used to be. But even in their younger days, and I can't go very far back, as I said, only to 1948, I always acknowledged, or I always seemed to recognize an acknowledgement of each other's prowess, each other's ability. And on top of that, then, there's a very warm regard I had for each other. And that was particularly noticeable outside the precincts of the Doyle. On the occasion, one would see uh, them both at, say, for his, at a dinner in either house for a visiting diplomat or something like that. Uh, I often saw them in, in very deep and very, very friendly conversation. So that, uh, I think that probably applied to a lot of other deputies as well at the time that they fought the fight in the ring or in the arena they didn't, didn't seem to want to carry it into the, the social side of politics. And that certainly applied to Sean McIntyre, and particularly as between
0: Sean McIntyre and James Dillon. As a politician, Mr. de Valera seems to have regarded McIntyre as an all-purpose minister. He yeah. was in finance, he was in social welfare, yes. and health. Mm. he was in
6: health. Yes, I think uh, that probably was due to the fact that uh, there were two reasons, in my opinion, again, I have one in my own observation and, and conclusions to depend upon here. And, uh, Sh- Sean Lamass was obviously always regarded as uh, Dev's uh, success, uh, immediate successor. And uh, Sean Lamass, having first become, uh, in uh, the 1932 Fianna Fáil government, Minister for Industry and Commerce, He showed such a bent for uh, industry and commerce. He showed such a capacity in uh, economics generally that I think Sean DeMasse would have stayed there as long as he liked and did, in fact, until the war came when he was appointed Minister for Supplies. Uh, And I think then Sean McIntyre became Minister for Industry and Commerce for a short time. But for that reason... Since Sean McIntyre obviously had no uh, ambition, he may have had the ambition, but he saw no possibility, as long as Sean Masse was there being a younger man of becoming the deputy Taoiseach, or Tornister, as ultimately he became. Uh, therefore, he was a man of such ability that have used him deliberately. He was in finance, as you said, he was in industry and commerce, as I just indicated, when Sean Lamass moved into supplies during the emergency years. He was Minister for Health and Local Government, and ultimately Minister for Health only. Uh, local Government and Health, I think, would be possibly be the two ministries that he'd be cl- more closely identified with. But he was also, of course, Minister for Finance. So that uh, you're right in observing that Dev used him as a, a utility man, so to speak, in the Cabinet. As I said, it was first because of the fact that the mass concentrated on the economic side and uh, that um, McEntee had no uh, objection in the event of being moved from what you might call a senior ministry in finance to a relatively or, or a le- a less senior ministry in say health or local government so there, there were two factors there combining in, 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 in that part of Sean McEntee's uh, official life I said earlier that Sean McEntee uh, was uh, a man of great commitment and would fight for the cause in which he believed. Uh, I'd like to put on record the assistance he gave me during the period of the early 70s, during the period of of the difficulties we had in connection with the importation of arms. And Sean McIntyre then, irrespective of whether he had a, a regard for me or not. He had a very high regard for the leadership of Fiona and he supported that leadership in a most effective manner. I think he was a, a very potent factor at that time in establishing the authority of the leader and therefore in maintaining the integrity of the party in every sense of the word, integrity. So that... Uh, this is one thing that
0: I will always remember Sean McEntee for. People will remember Sean McEntee for various things. Monsignor Morris Brown,
3: a friend all my life, and a hundred percent, I'd say, is the be- Sean is the incorruptible, like what they him, that um, Rose Pierre. Sean would never sort of um, or oh, do any favor that wouldn't fall in line with um, sort of. Orthodoxy, you know, that if you, I, I a little, um, well, favours from other ministers, but not from Sean. He'd say, "Well, if you qualify, you'll get it, but otherwise, no, no deal." You see. So he was, uh, and and not only that, but if if, for instance, he did some thing like opening factories and that, and they sent him a present, then he'd send it back to them. And that was Sean. He was absolutely a righteous man, you know.
0: The sea green incorruptible. Oh,
3: sea green incorruptible. That was the, the one I right.
6: Jack Lynch. I had a very, very warm regard for Sean McEntee. Naturally, I met him frequently, uh, subsequently, in the subsequent years, uh, both in opposition and in government. And um, if I could uh, sum him up as a result of all my uh, experience of him, Uh, I could say that he was a man of uh, great commitment to a cause a cause in which he believed a man who expressed himself uh, most vigorously and uh, most intelligently he was a man of course of high intellect uh, a great fighter and
0: behind it all a man who had great compassion. And what of the man himself? For what achievements did he wish to be remembered? Two things, of major achievements. First of all, the establishment of
1: the Department of Health and the Department of Social Welfare. That took me three years to get that through the through the through the cabinet. Uh, and uh, and uh, if you'd like arising out of that the the long struggle to have it accepted by the medical profession, which involved me in a great deal of adverse publicity of what was necessary. That was one. The other was coming through the economic war and emerging uh, uh, in 1938 with the financial settlement. that without having any sort of crash and with enormous development of the infrastructure of this country that I think are my two contributions to it the things I'm proudest of if one has any right to be proud of what you do with the help of other people